Before we get started, I need to thank a new Patreon patron. Thank you, Joel Rainey, for going to patreon.com slash originalcastpod and supporting the art that you love. And you've joined at the best time, as I'm sure you're aware, because 2023 is the year of Barbara. We are covering 12 Barbara Streisand motion pictures here for your enjoyment over at our bonus podcast, The Original Cast of the Movies. Our episode on The Mirror Has Two Faces is out now. February's film is Hello, Dolly. March is The Prince of Tides, and we're doing them all. Well, not all of them, just the ones we haven't done, and we're not going up and doing the, the Seth Rogen one where he's driving her around. I just I don't want to watch that one. But other than that, we are covering lots of Barbara Streisand all year. Go to patreon.com slash originalcastpod, become a patron, and gain access to the original cast of the movie so you can hear our year of Barbara, year of episodes, 12 films, all Barbara, all year. You don't want to miss it. All right, here's the show. Whenever my world falls apart, I never lose hope or lose heart. Whatever the form of the storm that may brew, not with you to lean on, darlings, you. Hello and welcome to The Original Cast, a podcast about original cast albums and the people who love them. I'm Patrick Flynn. My guest today is the author of the book, Robert Preston, Forever the Music Man. It's Deborah Warren, everybody. Hi, how are you? Good, Deborah. how are you? Great. So nice to have you on to talk about Robert Preston and, of course, other things. And framing this conversation, you're here to talk about... Mac and Mabel. Movies were movies when you paid a dime to escape. Cheering the hero and hissing the man in the cape. Romance and action and thrills. Partner thars gold in them hills. Movies were movies when during the titles you'd know. You'd get a happy ending, dozens of blundering cops in a thundering chase. Getting a bang out of lemon meringue in the face. Bandits attacking a train. One little tramp with a cane. Movies were movies were movies when I ran the show. Mac and Mabel. Yes, of all the Robert Preston shows, you picked a great one to discuss. So much going on. Uh, And I will start where we always begin, which is how did Mac and Mabel come into your life? Uh, Well, in writing the biography of Mr. Preston, that was the musical. Actually, that was his last successful musical. Yes. Um, He did uh, star or he was the lead in another musical after Mac and Mabel, which was the Prince of Grand Street. But that never made it to Broadway. So Mac and Mabel was his last performance on the Broadway stage. And Mm -hmm. that was part of my research in doing his biography. And you were, I mean, sort of, obviously we all know Robert Preston primarily for the music man. And, and uh, if you don't know him for the music man, you might know him from, you know, uh, Victor Victoria or, or one of those other performances. Uh, But Mac and Mabel holds a special place, I think in Broadway fans hearts as a show uh, for being a beloved flop for one of a better term that keeps getting revived. People love this album. You know, it really kind of holds on. I think yes. for a lot of people. Yes, it, uh, the songs, the score, um, and uh, the the story. Um, it there was just a, an unfortunate confluence of things. I think that happened that uh, made the 1974 uh, show not successful. Yeah, it's one of those. Uh, it, it seems like. I mean, to paraphrase the producers, you had the right cast, the right composer, the right book writer, the right director. Where did you go wrong in this this sort of situation? Uh, And there's a lot of, as there always are, you know, postmortems of of shows like this. There seems to be a lot of uh, blame being cast around. I don't think any of the, except for David Merrick, uh, who seemed to get the brunt of it from Jerry Herman, possibly. uh, I don't think anybody really walked away with ill will. But it was certainly a disappointing flop for for everybody involved. Yes. And actually, Jerry Herman, although uh, he had issues with David Merrick, he had even bigger issues with the director, Gower Champion, Mm -hmm. um, and uh, was very frustrated. I mean, because he obviously wrote the score and uh, from what he 
revealed in his biography and, and just comments that he made throughout his lifetime. That was actually one of his favorite scores mm-hmm. was Mac and Mabel. Um, and he was frustrated that Gower Champion, there were just so many things that Gower did uh, from the time the production started its previews in San Diego, moved to Los Angeles, moved to um St. Louis, Washington, before they went to Broadway, his feeling was he had never in his life seen a show get worse as it previewed across the country. And that's pretty much what happened. It it started off from what I can gather, um, very successful in San Diego, even in Los Angeles. And then things began to deteriorate. And, you know, in looking at Gower Champion's life and what was going on with him at the time, there were a lot of questionable things happening in his life. Mm-hmm. To what degree that impacted his decisions, his directorial decisions, and Mac and Mabel, I guess we'll never know. But we do know that there was a lot of um, upheaval, you know, drug use, affairs, yeah. you know, the divorce, whatever from Marge all these different things were going on in his life. And I think that may have contributed to Mac and Mabel ending up the way it did. Yeah. It certainly seems like from what I was able to, to glean. And like you said, research is kind of spotty on Mac and Mabel's. I think because of its, it's one of those things where the flop comes along and everybody sort of, you know, the, the people start forgetting the details a little bit. Uh, but it, it certainly seems like a show that was doing just fine on the West coast, but needed work. Right. And then feels like one of those things where, I mean, directors direct, that's what they do. And it seems like it kept getting directed and directed and directed and directed. And it probably needed some serious rewriting uh, to get it sort of more in line. And that is true. I think, you know, uh, you're obviously more of an expert than I in looking at all of these various um, musical scores. Mm -hmm. But I think that's true. Even looking at Preston's career and the various plays and musicals that he was involved in. uh, That's what at that time going on the road was all about. There were kinks in every show, even the music man um, that, you know, and you had to iron those out before you ended up going to Broadway. And unfortunately there were more kinks added to Mac and Mabel than ironed out. So. Yeah. It it certainly feels like one of those, one of those things for folks who don't know, I think probably a, a good place to start before we dive headlong into, into Mr. Preston, which I am fascinated to talk to you about. Uh, do you think you could give people a quick plot summary of Mac and Mabel for those who don't know? Um, basically the, um, story, um, was something that was created, uh, the book of the musical was created by Michael Stewart, and it was uh, supposed to chronicle the love affair between Max Sennett, who was the um, uh, movie di- silent movie director, and uh, his one of his top stars, Mabel Norman. She was a comedian. And the show basically... Um, is from Max Sennett's point of view. Um, he talks about uh, his relationship with Mabel, um, her uh, drug use, which is interesting. I'll digress there a little bit. Um, the show kind of talks about her heroin use when actually in reality she was addicted to cocaine, but that yes. was they took they took poetic license with that. Right. Um, it talks about uh, how she. Um, You know, she was a comedian, but she wanted to do more serious roles. Um, She admired another director, William Desmond Taylor, and um, got involved with him. And uh, allegedly, according well, according to the uh, script, um, William Desmond Taylor encouraged her to use heroin, um, uh, which in reality, that wasn't actually true. But again, that's another point of poetic license. Um, and, uh, in the end, uh, Mabel Norman dies and, uh, Ms., you know, Mr. Senate, uh, Mr. Preston acting as, uh, Mr. Senate, um, kind of announces to the audience that, uh, Mabel has passed away. And, uh, um, so it, it, it kind of gives, uh, a summary that the play is a summary of their relationship. However, it takes a lot of, um, creative poetic license in the story. And I think that was done for whatever reason, I guess maybe to make it more interesting or whatever, but um, that's pretty much uh, 
an encapsulation of mm-hmm. what happened. Yeah, it, it is a you know fictionalized version of of their very real and very interesting relationship. Uh, mm-hmm. That if you ever uh, there are several you can watch on YouTube. Great documentaries about Max Sennett and 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 Mabel. And it is she's a fascinating person, uh, actress, producer, writer, di- filmmaker. Uh, she is little known fact about her that I love is that she directed the first movie that Charlie Chaplin played the tramp in, uh, which is you know, a seminal film to direct in this life. Mm-hmm. And uh, she did. Yeah. It, the, 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 the musical really being from Max Sennett's point of view has a, a lot of tonal issues, I think with there's this sort of running theme of the movies and the movies being fantasy and, and how, what kind of movies he likes to make and how he likes comedies. Mm-hmm. And that's contrasted with the fact that a lot of, their relationship was tragic. And I think, you know, that's sort of what the musical is going for is trying to develop this contrast into this like fantasy ending where he imagines a happy ending where he actually gets to uh, mm-hmm. reconcile with Mabel and they have a, a, a happy finale. Um, but it's very bittersweet and very uh, somber ultimately. And I think audiences really found that tough to swallow. Yes. That, that's <laughs> one of the things that uh, Jerry Herman had pointed out. Um, was that it ends with Mabel's death and uh, it was so morose. And so instead of having some different type of ending or changing something um, that it ended on a down note. And so he felt that that was one of the reasons too, that uh, the musical wasn't successful that, and I think that was, you know, one of the things that he had wanted Gower champion to tweak or to change or, you know, and instead there were all these other things that he focused on that just were irrelevant and uh, made things worse uh, yeah. in, in Mr. Herman's opinion. And probably, the, you know, the Broadway audience's opinion, too. Um, and it was just it's just a shame because it was so much talent um, in that okay. cast. Uh, it was a great story. Most of it, like I said, there could have been some tweaking and it was just uh, and then I think if you want to call it theater politics came into it as well. Um, the same as, as it did with um, the Prince of Grand Street. Mm-hmm. Um, the cast, surviving cast, seems to think that one of the reasons that particular show um, didn't make it to Broadway is because of scheduling issues. Uh, there were so many shows that were um, going to be scheduled on Broadway. There wasn't enough room. And some of these, some of the shows say in Boston or New Haven, whatever, were axed on the road. Mm-hmm. Um, the same thing, it sounds like from at least Jerry Herman's perspective, is the same uh, thing happened to Mac and Mabel, um, that David Merrick uh, knew that The Wiz was going to be uh, more lucrative. Um, that was scheduled to be at the Majestic, I believe. And so this was the, this show was a casualty, um, mm-hmm. it, you know. And so I think a lot of that went on. Uh, I don't know if it still goes on, but it went on years ago um, on Broadway and uh, certain shows that were memorable, great, uh, could have been great, um, were axed and sacrificed on the altar of profit. Yeah, it's I mean, David Merrick is is somebody with a, uh, shall we say, checkered past uh, as a a producer um, and a. not a great guy. I think we can all agree. Right. Um, and certainly uh, not above anything. I wouldn't, you know, the stories you could, you hear about the things he did that he proudly admitted to mm-hmm. uh, makes you go any of those sort of other stories you hear about him. You go, yeah, pro- it's entirely possible. That's what mm-hmm. happened. Um, and it also breeds a certain amount of d- distrust, you know, where somebody, his collaborators would be like, oh, I'll bet he did this to our show just to do that, you know, mm-hmm. so it's tough. And it's especially tough, I think, when you have most of the same creative team who made Hello, Dolly, including David Merrick, uh, you know, at the time, the biggest Broadway show ever, because Chorus Line had not yet opened when when uh, Mac and Mabel did. Um, it just, you know, you expect you expect Hello, Dolly, too. And you don't when you don't get that experience, it's pretty, it can be pretty shocking. Yeah. I think to everyone involved. And uh, 
you know, I, I wouldn't count on David Merrick to be there when times are bad. So that sort of seems to be, be the general experience. Um, but like you say, the notices across the board, two things they seem to praise were uh, Jerry Herman's score and Robert Preston's performance. His chemistry with Bernadette Peters comes into sort of some question and, and they're sort of on stage together didn't seem to be like maybe the greatest thing in the world but individually they seem to get pretty good notices for their individual songs and i will say listening to this album again with that in mind that we were going to talk about it but also robert preston um he really has one of those voices where i get and it's probably music man holdover but i get instantly relaxed when he starts when he starts doing his thing, I'm sort of like, oh, good. You know, and I just sort of sit there and, and listen to him. He has one of those like great presence that comes through even on an album like this. It's really wonderful. And he wasn't a trained singer. I mean, right. unlike, you know, uh, people today who are in musical theater, who are, um, you know, sopranos and baritones, et cetera. Um, and they've had a lot of voice training. He had, he had, I think, one or two lessons with Herb Green you know, in the fifties, that was it. And then he didn't have time to do any more. That was it. So, mm-hmm. um, and he did have some issues along the way, not, not in Mac and Mabel that I can recall, but because he wasn't um, a professional singer, he often would strain his voice. Mm-hmm. And there were many times in many of the performances that he did in many of the musicals where he'd lose his voice um, just because he wasn't, he wasn't trained as a singer. Yeah, you can hear it, actually, if you listen to the cast album for Music Man during 76 trombones when he goes full octave higher than the score. You can hear him really pushing that note out of his throat. There were 50 mounted cannon in the battery Thundering, thundering louder than before Clarinets of every size and trumpeters would improvise a full octave higher than the score. It's neat in in the recording to be like, to feel the energy that he's putting forward. At the same time, the performer in me kind of goes, ooh, Bob, slow, man, buddy, you can't do that. That's that's not going to go eight times a week. But he was one of the great things about performers from that age, I think, who were not, as we say, trained singers. they were trained actors trained to use their voice mm-hmm. on stage without amplification. So he did know how to manipulate his voice yes. and, and work with his voice, which is why he ends up being a good singer. Unlike somebody like say Rex Harrison, who really couldn't carry a tune in a bucket was very good at the talk singing thing, but couldn't, couldn't sing. Right. Preston sort of developed this vocal style throughout and ends up in the movie for Mame uh, getting a song written for him by by Jerry Herman specifically Loving for you. the movie. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Um, which just goes to show how much Herman loved working with him, that he would write a whole new song just for that voice. So, right. I mean, that speaks volumes about, about a yes. man's talent. Yeah. Yes, yes. Loving you is tart as lemonade and sweet as April wine Loving you is watching all the lovely things of life combined. In your arms I'm all I wish I were. I'm brave, I'm strong, and I'm true. As long as I can go on living. So how did you become interested in Robert Preston? Uh, it's kind of a bifurcated story. Um, I This was a project that I started uh, during the early months of the pandemic mm-hmm. when we were all housebound and uh, I was... Uh, scrolling on the web and found uh, a Robert Preston um, was like a fan group or Robert Preston page. And one of the things that um, a lot of the participants were indicating was that there wasn't a whole lot of background information on him. You know, Mm. they, they just didn't have a lot of information. So I'm 
you know, I'm the type of person it's, it was like almost a challenge to me. It's like, well, you know, let's see what I can find out. So I started digging and compiling and within short order, I realized, wow, I, you know, I better compile this into, um, a biography or book. Um, but prior to that, uh, I want to say 35 years ago or so I had had kind of a weird, um, experience. I, I wrote a screenplay at that at that time that kind of didn't go anywhere. But um, the screenplay kind of was a um, evolved from a dream that I had, actually. I kind of dreamt a whole uh, motion picture, which was like mm. crazy. And Preston was in there. Um, Pierce Brosnan was in there. Uh, Rue McClanahan was in there. There were all oh, wow. these stars. Um, and it was, about, it was about a robotics uh, company. And it was almost a, a prescient uh, type of a, a script that kind of shows kind of showed what some of the things that are going on today with the IT uh, computer robotics industry. Mm. But anyway, so I wrote this uh, script and, you know, tried to get it. I had an agent and had to try to shop it around, but it didn't go anywhere. But so it was unusual that, you know, Preston happened to be one of the characters in this uh, dream that I had. Mm. Um, and so then, you know, years later, as I'm scrolling, I'm like, oh, yeah, Robert Preston, you know, let's see what this is all about. And so uh, when I realized there wasn't a lot of biographical information, I started to dig. And then I was lucky enough to be able to um, talk to many of the co-stars who are still with us, um, who were able to share their stories of working with him. So uh, that's kind of how it transpired. He is a like you say, a not well-documented, you know, member of the important acting uh, member of our, of the Broadway community and, and of film and, and in general, he, I think partially from his, what seems like a very private nature and not a salacious personal life, which are things that'll get, you know, newspaper headlines, which gets biographers interested later. He seems to be one of these guys who was a working actor and mm -hmm. he just, worked and he worked and he worked and he worked until you know and then he didn't get his starring role until he was was he 40 when he did music man or almost uh, 40 almost yeah he was like 39 um uh, he turned 40 the following june um but yeah he was about 39 when he um in december of uh, 1957 when he uh first stepped on the stage as harold hill uh, yeah, I mean, that's just it, it's really a, a testament to not only talent, uh, but persistence. He did a lot a lot of the, you know, Playhouse 90, mm -hmm. uh, U.S. Steel Hour, all, you know, uh, in the early 50s. First of all, because uh, his motto was, if you're an actor, keep acting, you know, mm -hmm. do whatever is available. It was another it, I, apparently it paid pretty well, according to Angela Lansbury, because uh <laughs> you know, uh, th those uh, productions paid well. And they were looking initially, um, you know, with all those um, TV productions for uh, theater trained actors, because mm -hmm. they wanted somebody who knew where to stand, where their mark was, how to project their voice, to remember uh, all this dialogue, et cetera. So a lot of the people that you see in those productions were, um, theater trained actors and um and Preston obviously uh, with his background in the Pasadena Playhouse um you know fit that bill he was a Shakespearean he, uh, he cut his teeth on Shakespeare and um so uh he was sought after I, I can't tell you how many uh productions he did um during the early 50s uh you know, on television. He didn't mm -hmm. like television per se uh, to be in a series. He didn't want to be labeled as a character, mm -hmm. but with these individual, it was almost like a one night theater mm -hmm. opening, a one night play. And he liked that. Mm -hmm. It seems like it would be, I mean, for somebody like him, a lot of fun to, you know, you rehearse for a week and then you, you shoot this thing and it just right. goes out live and there's right. no, there's no indication that it's going to be saved. You know, it just sort of, you know, they, the, the idea of the rerun didn't, didn't exist at the time. Luckily we have, you know, kinographs or, or recordings of these things that we can watch now, but the, the, the sort of the fact that you do it, it just kind of drifts off into the air must've been very liberating for a lot of these, these theater mm -hmm. actors who are, like you say, getting paid very well and uh, working for two weeks and no, it, you know, who was going to see it? Who knows? Like it doesn't really, it sort of drifts away. Right. And if it's no good, that's fine. It's off the air. It doesn't have to, you know, we don't have to do, go out and do it again tomorrow night. It just sort right. of 
it sort of vanishes. You, 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 uh, I mean, he, he, one of the things I know you focus on in, in the book, which people may not realize who only know him from the music man, though, I think when I say this, if you know the music man, it will make sense to you that he was a very versatile performer. He had a lot of quivers, you know, a lot of arrows in his yes. quiver. And that's why he was, that's why the extreme frustration um, that he experienced starting as a young actor um, going all the way through till he uh, started in the music man, because he knew innately, even from his work in the Pasadena playhouse, he would play uh, a kind and gentle priest one, one week and he'd play a villain the next week and he'd play a romantic lead one time. And then he'd play uh, a villain the next time. So he knew um, the extent of his range and he knew he was able to do much more than the films and the roles that they cast him in at Paramount. Mm -hmm. And he was extremely frustrated, especially with someone like Cecil B. DeMille, who just kind of, you know, put him in the same role over and over again in different films, but he was basically playing the same character with a different wardrobe, you know, and he became frustrated that um, he wasn't given the type of roles that he knew he could flourish in. And hence that was, uh, the major reason that he um, initially took uh, a film in uh, England and on his way back um, made the stop in Broadway because he knew he needed to do something to shake up his career and give himself a wider range of roles. And he felt that 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 was really the only way for him to accomplish that. And it's no, I mean, it is a, there's no guarantee of any of these things. You know, we look at Music Man now, as what it was, which was a tremendous hit, you know, in the late fifties, but they, they tried to cast a lot of people as Harold Hill, as he says, I think famously, they looked at every musical comedy actor before they got to him. And some of them they rejected, but some turned them down. And this was not a part that like everyone was clamoring to play Harold Hill. This was a, you know, very nostalgic musical by a guy who's a songwriter who hadn't had a show on Broadway, Mm -hmm. who wrote the whole thing, which is not, you know, maybe yes or no but like that's that's not always great and it just clicked and worked and i think one of the reasons it just clicked and worked was because of robert preston i think that he's that sort of secret sauce in there that and and meredith wilson knew that he was he embodied for meredith wilson the music man and um hollywood if you know if you notice you look at things like um you know, My Fair Lady, and, and there's other um, Broadway shows that became uh, movies. Uh, you had uh, Hollywood film studios who were obsessed with the bottom line and wanted big names, what they considered box office draws, to headline these shows. And so instead of Julie Andrews doing My Fair Lady, it was Audrey Hepburn who couldn't sing worth a a darn they had to dub yeah. everything but it didn't matter she was a big name and they um you know placed her in the film and that's what uh jack warner wanted to do with the music man he really wanted well frank sinatra wanted the part right Bing crosby wanted the part because they knew it had been such a smash on broadway this was something that they felt could re- revive their careers or, you know, be a, a great footnote in their careers. Yeah. And um, Meredith Wilson had uh, final cast approval and said, yeah. uh-uh, I'll give the money back. This is my Harold Hill. If you want to do the film, you're going to do it with him. And that's how Barbara Cook sort of um, ended up in the, in the uh, dustbin there of mm. uh, uh, casting is because um, Jack Warner wanted what he considered a big name. Shirley Jones had just won an Academy Award for Elmer Gantry, and he uh, plucked her Mm -hmm. to be Marion Peru in The Music Man. So it was a lot of, again, politics, uh, financial things going on. And uh, but Meredith Wilson stood his ground. And as far as he was concerned, um, Preston was the embodiment of Harold Hill. And that's who he wanted. Uh, to immortalize the role for all time. And it, I mean, and it, it speaks volumes, I think, to to Preston as somebody that, again, like going with the Jerry Herman writing him a song for the main movie, uh, somebody that people really loved working with. You know, I mean, it's it's hard to I'm sure 
Meredith Wilson knew that Music Man was the big property it was. He knew that this event like, would probably all break his way. But the fact that he's willing to stand up for this film and say, no, I want you gave me this. I want this guy is mm-hmm. a real like, you know, testament. It is also I mean, it, it is a little funny that that he wasn't. I, I understand the other actors vying for the role because at that point it's a star part. I mean, it's it's a known mm-hmm. quantity and those guys all have recording contracts and they would love to have, you know, till there was you along with the film in their right. in their catalog. But it is really funny that Preston is a film actor first and he still kind of can't get the film part <laughs> it's mm-hmm. not, some, some of this like julie andrew's not getting my fair lady shocking to us now but she was not a film actress at that point she was a stage actress and audrey hepburn was a star then of course she does mary poppins instead of my fair lady and wins an oscar and it becomes like then she becomes a star so you know that seems wild to us in retrospect but it's really funny to me that you know, preston's a film actor it's the one thing he knew how to do and they put him in this musical sort of you know by chance and you still don't want to give him the movie part he can do it you've seen him do it right, right. again i think a lot of it was you know political a lot of it oh, was yeah. financial and a lot of it was just in this case jack warner's you know he just had a quirk about wanting to have uh big names as a draw and that oh, was sure. his it's the way he wanted to do things. Yeah, it, it's and it's the way the movies, you know, have always worked. Uh, it's just so funny to me that he didn't, you know, but I guess it, it wouldn't be. It's so funny how many like how many times he had to really push to get that role. And it's his it, and but I mean, Meredith Wilson was right. Obviously, he's great in the film and it does for all time really make him Harold Hill in a very oh. real way. And I think what what augmented that is that so many times uh, you do have uh, something that's on the Broadway stage and then they make a film out of it, but you have a different cast of characters, a different director, uh, et cetera, and the film ends up taking on a completely different flavor or you know, it's not as good as the Broadway production. In this case, you had a majority of the cast Mm-hmm. Uh, continue on mm-hmm. um and you had the director the same director which kind of cut down on a lot of you know he didn't have to um reinvent the wheel he kind of knew uh the score and knew knew the uh, scenes and so i think that helped make the uh film a success is because um the the actors and actresses and the staging from broadway uh, transferred over beautifully to the screen. And I think that was, that not only helped Robert Preston look good, but it helped make the movie a success as well. Well, and it really kicked his film career then suddenly mm-hmm. into yeah. second gear. I mean, and he went on to have the best part of his career, you know, after that and, and got his you know, Oscar nominations and, 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 uh, and, and, and lots of, you know, all his work with Blake Edwards, obviously he became sort of a, again, speaking of Julie Andrews and uh, he really, he really got to where he had always wanted to be. It's, it's a wonderful yes. sort of, sort of story to that. Um, well, you are, uh, are you, a, you're a historian by, by training? Is that, is that correct? Um, actually, no, I'm, uh, I'm actually uh a forensic social worker and oh, uh, part my. of my part of my background was doing a lot of um investigations uh for the court system for many mm-hmm. many years and then I did I wrote several local histories so, so when you're talking uh, about okay. history I wrote sure. several local history books um in my time and then a screenplay as well mm-hmm. um so uh I like to you know I was looking at this project in terms of the way I kind of tackled everything that was historical uh, is just by laying out the facts and not mm-hmm. um, getting into too much gossip or, you know, there was a lot of many things that I heard or many things that were told to me that I, you know, couldn't substantiate. So obviously I didn't, you know, include them, but mm-hmm. I, I tended to uh, work chronologically and um, put all of the history uh, of his life uh, from start to finish um, and uh, did the research on that basis. What got you interested in writing if you were a, a forensic social worker? My goodness, that sounds well, that like a very stressful a job. That, yeah. 
It was. Um, yeah. that, but it involves a lot of writing. I mean, there mm. were uh, 25, 30 page reports that you had to um, submit and you had to interview um, not only the uh, parents and I did a lot of custody evaluations, not only the parents, the children, uh, the grandparents, the uh, daycare providers, anybody else, you know, if they had probation officers, if they whoever was involved in the um, in the life and then uh do a lot of investigation and then come up with the conclusion as to um, who should, who should have custody of these children in that mm-hmm. case, or, or in, in a criminal setting, uh, make recommendations about what would need to happen with a particular um, defendant. But uh, so it's, it's almost the same kind of thing where there's a lot of writing involved and you have to be very factual um, and uh, you have to document everything. And so uh, as with some of the other books that I've written, the history type books, it's, it's all um, the same thing where you're um, investigating, researching, and documenting all the facts, which then uh, come together as a jigsaw puzzle of the complete history of whatever it is that you're um, researching. So was it w- with your histories, were you writing on things that you were interested in that like peaked you, you wanted to learn more about, or was it more commission-based work? How yeah, did more commission-based where they'd say, uh, we would like to do a history of um, our village or we of this institution or whatever. And so you would have to start um, doing a lot of uh, not only photographic research, but uh, interviewing uh Various or, or going into some of these um, reservoirs, newspaper. If, if some of these institutions were like a hundred years old, so you had to go mm-hmm. back and uh, do a lot of research with newspapers, with um, people who uh, may have known people mm-hmm. who were around at the time of the inception of whatever the um, institution was. So uh, it was just a, a long and involved process for each of these things, which obviously then culminated in a written document, written book. Um, but like I said, it's 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 basically the same process that a little bit differently, but that's applied to, uh, in this case, it's examining the life of a human being, which isn't as cut and dried as if you're looking at, um, you know, uh, history of a particular uh, entity or particular geographical location or whatever. Um, so it's, it's, it's different in that sense, but in a way it's not. So I imagine you had a lot of experience doing interviews, but you know, there's obviously a difference between interviewing a, you know, a, a probation officer and interviewing Christopher Walken. Maybe there isn't, I don't know, but uh, you interviewed some wonderful people for this yeah. for yeah. this book with you know Leslie Ann Warren and I mean you know obviously but I'm telling people who are listening <laughs> Leslie right. Ann Warren Bob Gunton Loretta Swit and as a big MASH fan a name that leapt out to me when I saw right. that on the list what was I mean that must have been thrilling in its own right but then getting them to talk about somebody like that had they had worked with who they maybe had never really been asked to talk about before what was what was that experience like uh it was it was wonderful in fact um I recall, uh, I don't remember what I was doing, and I don't know if it was a number I didn't recognize, but I, I had a call, you know, um, sometime into this, and I, you know, hit the voicemail, and here it was Rosemary Harris saying, I understand you're, <laughs> I understand you're doing a, a, a biography of my dear friend Press, and oh, I absolutely want to talk to you. And here's my number, and call me, and you know, whatever. Oh um, so I was just flabbergasted uh, that uh, you know, and I was sort of glad I didn't get the call uh, when it right. came in because I think yeah. I would have been stunned been and not knowing what yeah. to say. Uh, but at least I was there with my notepad and paper, and uh, I was able to prepare some questions for her, and um, she was just lovely. And we, you know we had a lengthy conversation. So, you know, it, we went off into tangents. Some of it was about her career and sure. just different things. But, uh, and that's, that was true in um, most of the uh, interviews I had. And maybe it, it you know, uh, that was something I would do in my previous life too, is that, you know, you get people talking and they start talking about one thing or the next and you're digressing. And, 
but it, it all kind of tells you um, who they are, if they're credible, a uh, little bit about their character, et cetera. So I had that dream. I mean, Christopher Walken was great. I mean, he was talking about other things in his other parts of his career and uh, not only his uh, interactions with Preston. And I was kind of really shocked um, that he was so candid about um the fact that he almost got fired from the line in winter and, mm-hmm. you know, that whole thing um, that he was very forthcoming about all that. So, um, you know, the, everyone that I talked to was just absolutely fabulous. Um, again, uh, otherwise I would have had an 800 page book, but I could only use <laughs> <laughs> snippets of, of what they said um, right. because a lot of it was not necessarily Robert Preston. It was just things about their life and their career and, Etc. Oh, sure. um, but 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 it was very very fascinating, and uh, I'm just so grateful to um, everyone who I would say most of the people uh, that I contacted were uh, just thrilled to be able. I mean, they all said to me, "Oh, this is a long time coming. Uh, it's about time that somebody um, you know documented his life." Etc. He's, you know, superb mm-hmm. actor, wonderful human being. And we're so glad you're doing this. And we're so glad to give you uh, some background information. So, you know, I was uh, kind of overwhelmed um, by the response and was just, you know, happy to speak to each and every one of them. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned the lion in winter. I think that's something that I was surprised to see on his resume. I knew, you know, sort of in the back of my head that he had done the original Broadway production of The Lion in Winter. Um, but of course, when we think of The Lion in Winter, we think of Catherine Hepburn and you think of uh, um, Peter O'Toole. Peter yeah. O'Toole, yes, as Henry II. But, you know, this this Broadway cast, no slouches they. I mean, it's Robert Preston and Rosemary Harris, as you say, Dennis Cooney. Uh, mm-hmm. A pre-hair James Rado, uh, Christopher Walken, and who's that on standby? It's Bruce Glover. So I mean, we're not like right. <laughs> they're not slouches. Right. This is right. a tremendous cast that has been right. assembled to perform right. this very difficult play. Right, and it's really and he's at the heart of it. I mean, is in in Henry yeah. the Second, right. and it, you know, it's it's just uh, I, that's one of those where my God, gosh, I wish I got could have gotten to see that because that must right. have been something to see. It is such a versatile and an and interesting career. I wonder sort of when you're documenting it in the book or when you're talking. What, so was there anything that you that came out of those interviews that surprised you, either in the fact that it was like something everybody said or, or a specific story somebody said that really made you go, oh, wow, that's that like that really took you back a little bit? Um, I, I guess one of the things that uh, one of the themes that came over and over and over um, was that what a, what a nice person he was mm. to work with, how the directors, the producers, his fellow actors uh, loved working with him. He, he made an extra effort to uh, be amenable and to have things run smoothly, whether it was on a Broadway stage or a film set. Now, obviously, uh, from what I can gather, he would go home and vent to his wife about maybe certain things that were irritating him or whatever, but sure. he'd go back the next day and, um, you know, uh, be amenable. If the director wanted to change things 10 times, he changed things 10 times. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's how he, you know, he felt, uh, I'm here to do a job. If this is the way you want me to do it, this is the way I'm going to do it. And, um, so that was his, um, that was his MO. Um, I guess one of the things I was kind of shocked at two things was that uh, in the early part of his career, because he had a photographic memory, he um, would get all the dialogue and the set directions down and would could come into a um, Broadway play or film uh, set and complete completely have his dialogue down. Um, And uh, that's one of the things in, in talking to his nephew that he marveled at was that uh, he said he has all of his, all the scripts for the various um, plays, musicals, and films. And when you look at the film and you look at the script, it's verbatim. You know, mm-hmm. he, he, he delivered it verbatim. Um, the interesting thing is when you see um, SOB mm-hmm. and when you see um, Victor Victoria, he did a lot of improvising. Blake mm-hmm. Edwards was notorious for that. He liked to have the camera roll and for people just 
to um, ad lib and to just uh, improvise. And he, he found that uh, it was funnier that way, that, you know, if you knew what the scene was, um, you should just improvise or, you know, throw things in um, that came to your head that would uh, make the scene a little bit better. And that was particularly true in Victor Victoria. So what was interesting to me, especially from Leslie Ann Warren, was that she talked about how uh, expert he was and, and how comfortable he was at improvising, which was something he hadn't ever done mm -hmm. prior to his work with Blake Edwards. And so that was a dichotomy right there, which was kind of shocking that here you get somebody with a photographic memory who can just regurgitate his lines on cue. And then all of a sudden he's comfortable mm -hmm. improvising at living uh, and did it well. Mm -hmm. um, so there again, uh, it just shows his versatility that he stepped up to the challenge, stepped up to the moment, uh, was able to give wonderful performances on an ad lib basis. And that made the movies great. SOB, I mean, was a wonderful film. It didn't get a, a lot of uh, uh, critical acclaim, obviously, because movie. it was land blasting yeah. the movie industry. Yeah. Uh, so obviously that wasn't going to get any awards or any whatever. They just wanted to bury it. Right. Um, but no, I mean, he he, you know, improvised in those movies and um, was terrific. So there again, that was just another piece of his talent that he was just able to go with the flow and give a wonderful performance, which, uh, you know, as, as um, uh, Leslie Ann Warren says, that was something that Julie Andrews wasn't comfortable with. And probably a lot of people aren't comfortable with, but oh, yeah. that was something he rose to the moment and, and did a fantastic uh, job. He, he has such a wonderful spontaneity to him. Mm -hmm. And it's that, I mean, the, the old saying that being the like acting is acting like you're not acting. And it, one of the reasons I think, his his he was so perfectly suited for harold hill is and it's so it's captured beautifully in the movie there's all those little moments where it where harold hill has to think on his feet and say the right thing and sometimes he doesn't but he's sort of very confident the whole time and when preston's doing that it has I, great believability to it. I believe that he's really, I mean, the scene that pops to mind that's always so funny is when he rings on the mayor's doorbell. And Just a minute here. Are you soliciting? You haven't got a license. Why, no, Mr. Mayor. Mr. Mayor, I collect doorbells, and this particular specimen has an unusual tone quality. Flattery never... will not avail you soliciting statutory in this county. Malfeasance without a permit. Why haven't you been over City Hall with your references? Well, I must have just missed you, Mr. None Mayor. None of your alibis well, go Mr. with Mayor, me. Your hand. Hmm? Isn't that amazing? What, what? That spread of the little finger. It's hereditary. It is? Hmm. What does that mean? Why, it means that your son's little finger is perfectly situated to operate the spit valve on a B-flat flugelhorn. Is that good? Good. That also means that America has finally produced an artist who can flugel the minute waltz in 50 seconds. How can I get one of those horns? Sign here, Mr. Mayor. Yes, sir. Fine, fine. That'll be $17 import fee. Just think, I could have missed this whole thing. My son could have... I haven't got any son! It feels very much like he's looking around being like, oh, this thing, like, this is interesting. I can I can talk about this for a little while. Well, that was the interesting thing about him. And, and there may have been other actors um, as well, but it's he, he used every part of his body, mm -hmm. a look. Oh, yeah. A gesture, mm -hmm. um, his voice um, to emphasize each role or each scene he was in, which a lot of the times many actors aren't able to do that. It's just a knowing glance sometime or whatever. Uh, but he knew exactly almost what to do in a particular, you know, how to emote in a particular scene um, that made it more believable. Um, mm -hmm. And so that was a talent, a gift that he had. And, uh, uh, and I think for that reason, he was um, undervalued, overlooked uh you know he had he had a career before and after the music man and uh uh a lot of people just aren't aware of it just because that you know they remember that um and don't remember much else yeah the big curse i think of somebody like of somebody like robert preston uh who who reminds me of other great actors like jeff bridges would, would spring to mind off the top of my head that he just makes it look so easy 
He really mm-hmm. doesn't look like he's trying. You don't mm-hmm. see the wheels turning. It just feels like he's doing it. And that's what we always say we want from our actors. But that isn't always what wins you awards. You know, we want like the right. the, the louder performances, the grindier performances. That's what you want to, you know, mm-hmm. that's why you have all those stories around Oscar time in the press of, oh, he broke his foot doing that performance. Like we're supposed to be impressed by by that. And mm-hmm. it works is the other reason you hear all those yeah. things, yeah. I think, a lot of the time. And Preston just really, like you say, he goes out there and he does it. And I think it speaks a lot to his ethic of just working all the time that he through all that repetition learned how to use his voice and learned how to use his body so much so that when he was cast in a singing and dancing role even though he couldn't sing or dance he could do it he Mm -hmm. knew how to like manipulate his body and his voice and it looked like it looked exactly right for that Mm -hmm. character yes Mm -hmm. it's a real real testament to 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 somebody like that who i'm glad I'm so glad you wrote this book for that reason, like that, like it, it, it is these people do need to be celebrated, <laughs> you know, the bombast and the brashness and the big performances who led the interesting, sexy, drug addled personal lives. Those are good books, too. Don't get me wrong. But we need to celebrate the people who are out there doing it, you know, and everybody seems to like working with them and they do their job and they do it incredibly well. And you know, that's that's behavior that we need to really be celebrating. <laughs> yes. And, you know, for, for the most part, you know, he led a quiet life. And, yeah. um, you know, there were a couple imbroglios that, you know, romances that he was involved with that kind of hit the front pages. But other than that, um, he tended to keep his head down, his nose to the grindstone. And um, like you said, just worked. Yeah. And it's it's really it's so uh an underappreciated skill, really, to me. Yes, yeah, it is. You yeah. could go out there. But I think people just, are, people, you know, you when you look at stars today, whether it's like, you know, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie or mm-hmm. et cetera, I think uh, a lot of people are invested. I'm talking about audience members of the public. A lot of times people are invested in the scandal or uh, the saga of what's mm-hmm. going on with the particular star. And I think that's what happened too. Uh, it's not just a, a phenomena that happens now. I mean, years ago, even like with Mabel Normand, Mary Miles yeah. Minter, et cetera, uh, there were all these, you know, uh, film books, movie magazines that would, you know, talk about what was going on in the star's personal lives. So I think people tend to get people tend to get hooked on the drama mm-hmm. of a particular star. And if there isn't any drama, it's like, oh, that person's kind of, yeah, they may be talented, but they're boring. So right. let's look over here, you know, let's look over here. So I think that was part of the issue with him is that he really didn't, I mean, aside from a couple of these relationships he had, there it wasn't, there wasn't like ongoing drama with the wife, ongoing, right. you know, uh, he wasn't a terror on the set. He wasn't, I mean, there, there wasn't any of this drama going on. So I think uh, for that reason, he stayed out of the headlines pretty much. And um I, I don't think that's kind of what captures the public's attention. Uh, at least you see that more today and probably back then with um, people who were making headlines, maybe for all the wrong reasons, right. um, you know, garnered a lot of public attention. Well, it was much more controlled, obviously, by the studios. At least they tried to control yes. narratives. And you want to keep you know, your stars in the paper, even when they're not in a movie so that right. when the next right. time the movie comes out, people want to see them because they're still top of mind. And there are some people who just aren't that person, you know, who are just not <laughs> fodder for those sorts of stories, good or bad. It's just sort of doing their thing and, and going right. along. And you're right. They tend to get overlooked because they don't stay top of mind in the same way, except right. by and I think this is a testament to, to this is borne out by Preston's career, except by the people they actually work with, you know, the people who are like, oh, no, I want to keep working with him. I want him to be in the movie. I want him to be in the show. I want that's who I want, because I know he'll do a really good job. And that's what I'm most interested right. in. I may right. not sell all the tickets, but the creative people are like, no, we need we need Robert Preston. That's that's who I want for this. And that's what we're going to do. And even for Mac and Mabel, um, you know, Jerry Orbrock, uh, they had originally signed him for the role mm-hmm. of Mac. And because Preston had uh, expressed some interest in it, they knew that in that there again, in that case, they knew he would be a bigger draw. Mm-hmm. And so uh, they asked Orbach to step aside and he came in as Mac Senate. So, again, mm-hmm. there's, you know, it's like 
who's a bigger name, who's a bigger right. draw, what's going to help the box office bottom line. That's mm-hmm. how the producers and directors look at things like that. Oh, sure. That's yeah. Twas ever thus. That is not new. That is, right. <laughs> that is, that is, that yeah. is the way it has, has always been. Um, so the, I, I have to ask as we sort of wind down a little bit though, here, since you brought us back into Mac and Mabel, I have to ask, as I ask everybody, what is your favorite song? Do you think in Mac um, and Mabel? I like the last song that, um, Preston sings to close out the show. I promise you a happy ending. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very poignant. Um, but uh, some of the and, and again, Jerry Herman, um, you know, wrote these songs, but it's interesting because what um, I've gleaned from uh, family and friends is that um, he, he always used um, he would always say he'd always refer to people like, yeah, kid, you know, he'd always use mm-hmm. that kind of uh, verbiage. And that's in, in the song. You know, mm-hmm. um, so uh, it's it's sort of like the way he spoke in his personal life. And I'm sure people who worked with him kind of knew how he um, spoke in his vernacular. And it, it almost seems like some of that was incorporated um, into the lyrics of that particular song. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, uh, they kind of uh, tailored it to him. Sure. Um, so uh, but. I like that. I mean, there's a lot. I love, I mean, I always listen to, I have a, a whole uh, playlist of some of these songs and I love, I won't send roses. Forget my shoulder when you're in need. Forgetting birthday is guaranteed. And should I love you, you would be the last to know. I won't send roses And roses suit you so Deborah, this has been absolutely wonderful to talk to you about Robert Preston. So the book is Robert Preston, Forever the Music Man. That's correct. Uh, what is the best place for people to get it? Um, they can, uh, it's available on Amazon. It's available uh, in Barnes and Noble online and in some of some of their stores. If it's not available, they can always order it. And uh, Indie uh, Bound, uh, it can be ordered there um, and in select uh, independent bookstores. But I'm not sure uh, where across the country it may or may not be. So uh, I would say the best place would be Amazon or Barnes and Noble online. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, there'll be a link in the show notes for everybody. So you can you can check it out. And uh, as I say, it, it it's a a wonderful thing that we can get biographies and stories told of people who have been. I mean, you know, he's he's been gone for, for quite a number of years now. Yes. Yeah. And it's never too late to remember people worth remembering. And he is certainly someone who deserves the praise and the accolades and the remembrance that, that you are presenting sure. to him. So. It's been wonderful talking to you about Mac and Mabel and about his career. And I thank you very much for the opportunity. I promise you a happy ending like the ones that you see on the screen. So if you've had a bad beginning, Love will come out winning in the closing scene. And when you find it rough contending with the grind that the world puts us through, I can promise you a happy ending that has you Loving me, loving you. The original cast is produced and edited by me, Patrick Flynn. Please rate and review the original cast on your podcatcher of choice. It's the easiest way to help other listeners find the show. Go to bit.ly slash original cast store for original cast merchandise like t-shirts, tote bags, and more. Become a patron of the original cast at patreon.com slash original cast pod so you can listen to our bonus podcast, the original cast at the movies. On the socials, we're at original cast pod. Special thanks to our social media manager, Bethany Zalecki. Hi, Bethany. My thanks to Deborah Warren for coming and talking to me. I'm Patrick Flynn, and I can't. I have rehearsal. Well, that's it, kid. 
Not so funny, huh? But then, you always did want a love story, didn't you? Well, let me add just one Senate touch. I love you, Mabel Norman. So long, kid.